Welcome to listeners of Talk With Me. This is Marcia Epstein around the dining room table recording Talk With Me with a guest today where I'm starting a week which is now unusual for me, which is a whole week of Lawrence, Kansas people, different kinds of topics, different kinds of talents, and Lawrence, Kansas is my hometown, so hey, it's only fair that we give big shouts out to Lawrence, Kansas, and that's what we're doing this week that begins with Monday, May 8th. I've been away in the mental health world that I work in for a while. I've been on the poet side most of the time and enjoy that a lot, and I love where I live. I love Lawrence, Kansas, so I'm happy to be doing this. And today brings another one of my interests to the table, literally to the table, as that's where we're sitting. And that is, I'm a huge fan of historic preservation and culture and learning about where we came from, what was going on in our communities at different times, and how we can learn and grow and incorporate that, you know? Not just everything needs to be new and not just everything needs to be old, but but to really get some ideas about where we came from, those kinds of things. So it's really fun to me that today is going to be a show about some projects that are based in Lawrence, Kansas, at this place called the Kansas River Kings Museum. And my guest is Barbara Higgins-Dover. Welcome, Barbara. Good morning. Hey, this is going to be fun, because you have all kinds of interesting stories to tell, this cool project, big things going on. And for people who who haven't met you and haven't met the museum, what are just some little background things for people to kind of get a sense of what we're going to be talking about? Uh, the museum itself. that Both the project <clears throat> and also just it, like you. Who is this person who's involved <laughs> with this River Kings? What's that? <laughs> okay, well, um, starting with myself, I'm Barbara Higgins-Dover, and I'm a native Laurentian. I also love it here in, in Lawrence, um, with this wonderful little spot in the state, in the state yeah. of Kansas. There's a tremendous amount of history, as most everyone knows. Yeah. Um, I can't think of a person that doesn't know the history of Quantrill and what happened in Lawrence, Kansas. But there's a lot of history that people don't know so much about. And a lot of the focus of my work is about the lesser known histories and very interesting, just ordinary people who were doing extraordinary things. Uh My grandfather, Richie Higgins, was what we would have called in that time a commercial fisherman, believe it or not. Lawrence, Kansas had a thriving commercial fishing industry. A lot of people did not know this and just, you know, maybe not even know where in the heck is the bridge that crosses the Kansas River. Well, it's by City Hall. Well, did you know that there was once a beginning about 100 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago at this point, about 1870, the commercial fishing industry really started to expand and grow where you could go any day of the week, pretty much, more so on the weekends, down to the riverfront and purchase fresh caught fish. The men who were catching and selling would clean it, cut it, weigh it, wrap it, and sell it to you for dinner. <laughs> right there on the river. Base. It was that fresh. Um, and most people don't realize the size of some of the fish that are even today still there 60, 70, 80 pound catfish. (laughs) We're not talking about the little fillets you find in the grocery store. We're talking about a heck of a big fish Uh and they still very much there and being caught even today. But this was a thriving commercial fishing industry where people went to buy it at market and have it for dinner 
on a regular basis, um, local grocers. And so at one point in time, everything they were doing became, they became river outlaws just suddenly. So I want to ask the question, mm -hmm. did it get, did laws get passed in theory to stop them? Yes. Okay, so it wasn't <laughs> that laws were in place. Well, there were some local ordinances in uh -huh. place that sort of were being overlooked because the people of Lawrence, Kansas, wanted this fish. Uh -huh. They wanted the food. They didn't want to have to travel as far as Kansas City big big markets uh -huh. to buy large quantities of, of fresh caught fish. Mm -hmm. And maybe they didn't necessarily have the time to do it themselves or the scale to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so the people of our community were very happy that it was there for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so were the grocers who were making money off of selling the catch. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was an individual that came along that didn't just abide by and attend to the local ordinances that were in place. He uh, actively sought out to stop the practice of commercial <laughs> fishing. And that was Lewis Dyke. Louis Dyke, Professor Louis Dyke, University but, of Kansas, yeah. Natural History Museum. Interesting. Uh, by the early 1900s, he was able to have, well, a bill was introduced to our state legislature, and it took on the name the Dyke Bill, where the laws became just so strict governing the practice of fishing on the river in this stretch of the Kansas River, they could really no longer sustain what they were doing, at least openly. Mm -hmm. That meant taking to the shadows in the dark, outrunning the laws, just mm -hmm. to make the living they were making. So what kind of rationale was there for wanting to type? I would like to ask Mr. Dyke that today. <laughs> uh, the research that I've done indicates that he had the idea that selling fish and producing a fishing industry in our state would be much better served if the state, in fact, had control of that. And so the Pratt County Fish Farms is still exist today, Pratt, Kansas. A huge, probably, I don't know if it is today, but was, in fact, in that time, the largest fish hatchery in the country. Wow. And there was money to be made, and things would be run through the state. Um and it is still located in Pratt, as far as I'm understanding it being the, one of the largest, if not still, in, this, in the country. He believed that fish should be farm-raised, corn-fed, that it would produce healthier, cleaner, tastier catfish, um, and that there were other fishes the fishermen may be pulling out of their nets that were fish he wanted to protect. So there were several reasons. Lewis Dyke was very much an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. uh, we all maybe recognize his name as being responsible for the Natural History Museum's panorama mm -hmm. with all the animal life. So he did some amazing things as a world traveler and environmentalist in his time. He did, made some amazing contributions. But at the same time, he despised this culture of commercial fishermen living off the river. He did not like the shacks, the fishing cabins that stood along the banks, and he actively sought to shut it down. So that adds 
not just environmentalism, but actually some very strong elitism and prejudice saying that I don't want these people, this kind of look around my river. Depends on who you ask. <laughs> I mean, Lewis Dyke, it was a beloved individual. Uh-huh. And as I said before, he contributed a tremendous amount to this community. Uh-huh. Um, we have Dyke Hall named after this man. Um, so as a human being, he was amazing. Uh-huh. Um, and as a beloved person in the community. But um, are you asking, if you are asking me, did he dislike the existence of what they were doing and what they stood for and what how that appeared for community? My, my answer is my personal view is yes, he did not like it. And eventually those shacks, those fishing cabins that stood for the industry in our community were torn down. Mm-hmm. And then they were definitely forced to stop what they were doing, but the story doesn't end there because they did not stop. Mm-hmm. And it continued for 100 years from between 1870 until 1970, where fish was commercially being um, sold. Hmm. My grandfather. From that river. Yes. From here in Lawrence, Kansas. And also from the Missouri River in Leavenworth, Kansas. Okay. So it was still uh, Kansas caught fish, but they were, some of these rivermen were traveling, uh, expanding elsewhere. Some of them decided they weren't going to fight the laws anymore and left, but a lot of them stayed um, and just continued to do what they did mm-hmm. in the dark, in the shadows, behind the scenes, mm-hmm. quietly, um, still selling fish. My grandfather was born in 1910. And he was a commercial fisherman on this river. He held a license on the Missouri River and brought back truckloads of fresh fish. But he also spent a great deal of time here in our area on the Kansas River. Mm-hmm. He had a, a fish market at 3rd and Maple Street on the north side mm-hmm. and openly sold fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure about the laws that govern the practice of operating a fish market, mm-hmm. considering the laws that were in place. But he was actively doing this Mm -hmm. when I was a young child. Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember watching my grandmother cook cook what he had caught. Uh, I remember watching them sell to customers and the bell being rung at the back of the house as people would come to buy fresh catfish. Mm -hmm. So it continued on um, until about that time uh, in history in 19, around 1970. Mm -hmm. And then what you see is, some increased environmental concerns about water safety, water quality, consumption of the fish in the waters. Uh-huh. And so I, I am currently unaware of anyone catching and selling what they catch openly commercially mm-hmm. this day in Kansas mm-hmm. for numerous reasons. But um, that's pretty much the background story of the River Kings uh-huh. uh, culturally. Most of these men were were poor. Mm-hmm. The first two River Kings, in my opinion, the most interesting of all of them. The fir- when I say the first two, I mean the first two we are aware of mm-hmm. actively selling commercially uh, were Abe Burns and Jake Washington. And Jake Washington was a was a man born into slavery <clears throat> in eighteen forty nine Missouri. So he comes over to Kansas, be it through the Underground Railroad or with the Exoduster Movement. We're not completely sure which one that it was. He ends up in Lawrence, Kansas by, we know, at least 1870. 
and he has constructed a fishing cabin and he's doing what he does. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's written about in those times mm -hmm. over and over again. And then more fishing cabins pop up along the banks of the river as this begins to be understood as quite a thriving opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just continues to grow. And we know of most of the, a lot of the men being black men. Sometimes they weren't. There was one individual named Dolly Graber or Gustav Dolly Graber of Prussian ancestry. And he lived at the same time as Abe and Jake. But he was a white man who was much more, he was well-spoken. Mm -hmm. He was taken a little more seriously as a businessman. He had other business opportunities. He operated an ice rink and boat rental facility along the banks. So there were times in, back in history when Dolly spoke up and his voice sort of stood for all those men who couldn't speak for themselves. Jake Washington, for one, was an illiterate black man. He couldn't read or write. And can you imagine trying to stand up for yourself against state <laughs> when you can't even read or write? So early on, as the laws began to intensify and go after them, um, they were savvy enough, the men of that time, were savvy enough to get themselves together and form the Cow River Fishermen's Alliance and hire a couple of attorneys. And they really fought hard to try to keep this industry going. But alas, we know what happens <laughs> after the turn of the 20th century, the Dyke Bill comes around, things begin to intensify, they're outrunning the laws consistently. And it just takes a completely different turn, but it does not cease to exist. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the lowdown, the background in a nutshell <laughs> of how the story of the River Kings and who were they and yeah. where were they and what were they doing and why are they important to community? Do you know when they started being called River Kings? That's a coined term. Um, when I opened the museum in 2015, it was really a name that I assigned to the museum. And really it's because these men were all very prideful of what they did. They were, uh -huh. they were proud. Uh -huh. They were strong. They were bullheaded. Some of them, um, they were rough, gutsy, living off the land kind of men. Uh -huh. And those families who were also proud of that often referred to their ancestor as a king of the Kaw or the king of the river, as did my own family. And sometimes the news media would refer to each, each one of these well-known men as kings of the Kaw, kings of the river, in a variety of different ways of using those terms. Uh -huh. And so what I decided to do was pool them all together. Not one of them, in my view, was more knowledgeable than the other. Uh -huh. Um, and so they really were all kings of the Ka, uh -huh. and that there were many of them that came long before my grandfather, uh -huh. in born in 1910. So it was important to go far back as we as we could. Uh -huh. Right now, I'm working on the early stages of a of a display case that is dedicated to the Delaware Indians. So if I want to go further back, so this is actually a project. 
Delaware Indians were here before Jake, Abe and Jake show up, mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, long before settlers, immigrants come in to create what we know as Lawrence, Kansas. Mm -hmm. uh, the Delaware tribe was here, occupying land on the north side in particular. And they were catching the fish off the river and they were drying it on racks. And most likely they weren't selling commercially, but most likely they were trading or bartering mm -hmm. what they caught and definitely consuming. Um, and so I feel that as far back as I can go with gaining the knowledge, I need to, to make sure and put that information out there. And so currently working on a case that is dedicated to those Delaware people and how they were using the river before any of these men arrive, even, mm -hmm. even that long ago. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about 1850s. Uh -huh. That's exciting. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. The information I've been able to find, um, even going back to, I mean, there's a, it's, it's quite involved, but I don't know if you've ever heard of, uh, Chief Sarkoxy. Just the name. John Sarkoxy. Yeah. It was a Delaware chief and living along Mud Creek on the north side. This is a tidbit from my current work. Uh-huh. William Quantrell was here living with the Delaware people before he burnt down the city of Lawrence. And he was living on the north side with the Delaware people, with Chief John Sarcoxy's son. Uh -huh. um, and he was riding around on one of their ponies in his own words, spying on the folks of Lawrence on the south side. Wow. Just keeping an eye on what was going on. I mean, we all know that he was very, um, very much against us becoming free state mm -hmm. and was not very fond of the anti-slavery movement. Mm -hmm. And he was scheming and planning and was here with the Delaware people long before mm -hmm. we I ever imagined. So that's sort of also part of that new exhibit, a new display yeah. that we're putting together. So how do you find the information? What <laughs> kinds of things are you doing? Hours and hours of looking through Kansas historical records, archives. Thank goodness for the internet. Uh -huh. um, Kansas Historical Society has got an abundant amount of information. If you, if you continue looking through all the news archives. Uh -huh. So if I find a tidbit of information, then I try to go backward and look for, well, in that case, there wouldn't be anything but census records to indicate who else was in the family, right. where were they living. Right. It will it will provide additional information. Mm -hmm. But as far as the River Kings being uh, information about them, you would not think that there would be a lot written about yeah. these poor old fishermen living yeah. off the river. But guess what? There was because they were breaking laws. Uh, so it was making the newspaper consistently <laughs> because they were always in trouble. Uh, they were always in trouble for one thing or another. Um, and it was written about regularly. There was a newspaper on the north side of town called the Jeffersonian Gazette. And it was a short-lived paper, but I find a lot of bias in their news reports in favor of the Rivermen. Mm. Um, I understand why that bias existed, but uh, the the reporters from that paper, that um, publication, 
saw the men as doing good for the community. Uh-huh. I mean, after all, they were also helping during floods, great floods. Some of them rescued hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, others, even Abe and Jake, were retrieving bodies of drowning victims that unfortunately many times were children yeah. who were using the river leisurely for a swim. Uh-huh. And it happened regularly. I don't have a body count of how many people Abe and Jake pulled out of the river, mm-hmm. but it was a continuous uh, thing that they were called to do. So they were, in my opinion, they weren't just breaking laws and, and considered river outlaws. They were also heroic. Mm-hmm. They were doing both. Mm-hmm. And so did the good outweigh the bad? That's a question that individual person will have to weigh all the information well, and, and make that decision. And if I'm understanding you, the, the, bad is only that they were breaking the law fish laws fish as mm-hmm. opposed to that they were harming people or right. stealing or you know they weren't stealing that, that i know of uh they were bootlegging some of them <laughs> and why am i laughing because it's just not uh, something that i did not expect i did expect it <laughs> i did expect it they were you know it was the life of a poor man to live fishing off the river that wasn't something that they were becoming wealthy mm-hmm. doing. They were just trying to survive because that's what they knew how to do. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes in the winter, particularly needed to supplement their incomes. Mm-hmm. The, most of them had families. That's what I was just wondering. Mm-hmm. So they had families and the families lived someplace differently or they lived in the river? Oh, the cabins for the most part were where they spent their working time. Uh-huh. I know that Jake lived in a small house in West Lawrence, actually, in Old West Lawrence, uh-huh. um, just off 6th Street. Um, Abe lived on the north side, close to the river. Uh-huh. So they, they most of them did have other homes with uh-huh. families and, and had a location to call a residence uh-huh. and use their those cabins as, as their business locations. But they were most likely there more than they were home, uh-huh. for sure. Uh-huh. They spent hours and hours of of their time there on the waters. So was it often generational, like that it would pass from one generation to the next of a family that somebody would pick up the fishing? Yes, a lot of times, definitely. Um, trying As you're asking me that, I'm trying to think of a couple of examples to give you. Jake, let's go back to Jake, the first commercial fisherman we know of. He had a son named Edward Washington. His nickname was Turtle. And I'm only assuming that it's because he caught a lot of river turtles. Uh But he had learned the trade of what it took to fish and bring in a fish of that size off Uh the Kansas River. Had worked a lot of time with his father. And so we know that that probably would have been what he continued to do throughout a good part of his life as well. But he was killed, uh, hit by a train, just be... um, beside the river. I don't want to tell too much of that story because it's in our film. Cool. Uh, so we do know of one instance with Jake. Um, Abe, as far as I know, never had children. Um, Doug Smith did. and was in the Adora area. Um, it was a thriving father-son business as well. My grandfather passed that information on to his, his own sons who uh-huh. all... They never really fished commercially, but it was a good part of their life. Uh So, yes, definitely. And 
a lot of the time they would pass that information to younger men. They would necessarily be their sons or daughters, mm -hmm. but would teach those skills to other younger rivermen who came along. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why it lasted as long as it did. Mm -hmm. Have you seen, have you found some specific stories about women also who became fishers? Not actively fishing okay. for the most part. I'm sure they did engage in some instances, but um, the role of women, and I include my grandmother, was overwhelmingly to be involved in the cutting, cleaning, weighing, and selling of that fish. Mm -hmm. my, at my grandfather's fish market, my grandmother was 50% of that business. Mm -hmm. She was doing all of those other activities. And my dad cooking it and eating, you know, for the family as well. Uh-huh. But she definitely was extremely involved in the running of that fish market. Um, another example, and this is from the 20th century, Orville Gully was another river king. And he and his wife operated a small restaurant on the north side by the river. If you're anyone familiar with Levy Cafe, new restaurant, uh -huh. uh, it was approximately right across the road, closer to the levee. Uh-huh in the 1940s and 50s. And it was called Ma and Pa's, and they sold catfish dinners. Uh -huh. uh, and he, Orville Gully and his wife operated that at that location. He also sold fish and bait tackle and things like that in the back of that property. So that's another instance of, of where the, the spouse of woman in the situation, in the marriage was um, actively involved. Uh -huh. And we have, I have a few images of Mildred Saunders, uh, the wife of Riverman, River King, Pug Saunders. And that's further back in time, holding up large catches that were brought in. How active she was in bringing it to shore, I don't know. But So it's, you know, it varies, but for the most part, the, the wives of the men were definitely involved. Uh -huh. Not necessarily were they the catchers of the fish, but they were definitely involved. Uh -huh. And you said it was the 1970s and environmental concerns that really kind of did this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As that escalated, if you go down to the river, even today, you're going to find that the Kansas um, at the state level, they are environmental, doing environmental studies and finding out uh, what kinds of pollutions in the water, what kinds of toxins. Mm -hmm. uh, I know at one point it was chloridane. I don't want to even pretend to be an expert on the chemical makeup of what's in our Kansas River. Uh -huh. Uh, but the concern was that uh, pesticide and runoff through rainwaters ending up in, in the river settled to the mud in the bottom, which the, our river is a muddy river, mm -hmm. and that those bottom feeding fish were ingesting from their, just from their natural mm -hmm. being in that habitat, they were ingesting those toxins. And so then turning around and consuming those fish, mm -hmm. we would as well. So there was a suggested limitation on an amount of consumption because of it, and that's still in place today. Mm -hmm. And they test it regularly. So, but again, I don't want to try to go there on chemical makeup of the of the toxins and the pollution. But sure. uh, there are those who could give you greater detail on that. But mm -hmm. it still is a of concern today. Mm -hmm. It will take an unimaginable amount of time before our waters totally 
free. <laughs> I mean, we have had some concerns with local issues of drinking water as well. Yeah. The quality of our drinking water. But um, the river, a lot of people don't pay attention to the river much. And it still, as of today, even if it's not providing us with, with a lot of fish, look at what it's doing. The Kansas River is providing elect enough electricity to 1,500 homes. Um, actually, I believe that goes to Wyandotte County, but that's um, Bowersock production. We've got now the green power plant on the north side. Uh, the levees definitely are used. Uh, people come for watching the eagles. Yeah. The canoeing club. Yeah. I mean, the river, we use it for drinking water in our toilets and in our sinks and watering our gardens. And so the the river is still extremely important to this community today, yes. although people don't pay a lot of attention to it, I think, a lot of the time. We've got so much to talk about, and this is, to me, it's so intriguing, and I have all these thoughts about, you know, what was motivated by prejudice, by bigotry, by, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing, as well as just the cool stories that you're, that you're unveiling and we need to tell people more about how they can experience some of that with the museum and some other things. But we're going to take a quick break right now and hear from a couple of the businesses that sponsor lawrencehits.com. And I say thank you to Daniel Smith, who produces the show. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk With Me. Today, I'm talking with Barbara Higgins-Dover, and we're talking about the river and the River Kings. And we will give you some information about this museum and a documentary and some different ways that you can learn even more. But to me, it's very intriguing. I think for me personally, for me as a social worker, for me as an American in 2017, mm -hmm. the more we can know and understand and appreciate about culture, the better, the better. And so it's, it's fun and exciting to think about those stories and, people being there on the river and, and why do things have to change? You know, yeah, I get the pollution part. I'm not sure I get the law parts, you know, <laughs> to make it more difficult for people to earn their living. So it's, it's complicated. It's always complicated. And although you said initially that, that most of the fishers were, were black men, you also talked about how there was, early on a more educated white man who really was not only a fisher but an advocate and so it wasn't it wasn't totally segregated and did that did, did you see a gradual shift of that as you've learned more about the fishers a shift in the demographics of who they were yeah no not really okay um so if i wanted to apply some adjectives to who these men were as an entire group even a mm -hmm. hundred years of that time mm -hmm. For the most part, you're talking about blue-collar men, hardworking, work-with-your-hands men mm -hmm. who are willing to get down in the dirt. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about men who fit, who did this for making their living. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's all kinds of individuals who will fish even today leisurely right. on the Kansas River because right. they just enjoy it. Yeah. But if we look at just the River Kings, uh -huh. they were overwhelmingly of a different socioeconomic culture than anyone I can categorize today. Uh -huh. Some of them had other jobs. Uh, they definitely supplemented their incomes, like I mentioned. Uh -huh. On their downtime or when it was just too cold or was just the wrong season for catching, bringing in fish, uh -huh. uh, they were hunting and trapping. 
along the banks of the river. So they were still using the Kansas River. Uh They were trapping for fur. They were duck hunting off the water. Even in the coldest of winter, sometimes a river king would would go down and cut a hole in the ice and ice spare Mm -hmm. for fish. If that didn't work, some of them cut ice and sold ice blocks to the ice houses that existed in, in their time. So that was also uh, a thriving business opportunity in our community. There were numerous uh-huh. ice houses. Uh-huh. You know, this is long before refrigeration. Uh-huh. When we got an ice box and they needed to cut the ice blocks for those ice boxes uh-huh. to keep their food cold. But they were doing a lot of different things to just try to survive. I see them as survivalists, uh-huh. adventurous outdoorsmen who were survivors who were giving to community and and that's what breaks my heart and but they weren't giving back the kind of respect they deserved uh-huh um they were doing everything they could to help their own community and they fed that those people at the same time so to me they were amazing they were amazing yeah. men would i be right in guessing i'm, I'm just imagining this so then and I think about it in part because as we're sitting in, in my family's home, mm-hmm. it's a home from the 1880s. And when I read about the home, like a, we did research on the home and a room on the second floor was referred to as the maid's quarters. So would I be right in guessing that during those early years and um, I'm not sure how, how long this would have been, that perhaps those people who worked for some of the wealthy families in Lawrence were sent down to buy fish to prepare for wealthier families in Lawrence? Probably. Yeah. Okay. We can make that. That's an easy <laughs> assumption to make. I, I do know that uh, Jake Washington was married to a part Native woman mm-hmm. named Anna. And if I look back at the census records, she is listed as being a um, housekeeper or servant at some points in time. Mm-hmm. So we... There was also um, a situation. These people were oftentimes any extra work had to do with the caregiving of other people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or domestic positions. And part of what I was thinking is that wealthier Laurentians were relying on the fish from these river kings. Yes, they definitely were. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if they didn't buy it directly from the river, they probably were buying fish dinners in the restaurants that they went to. Uh uh, Or if they sent someone to buy fresh fish, fresh catfish at the local meat market Uh for dinner that night. Oftentimes, churches in the community would have fish fries, charity gatherings where they'd cook large quantities of fresh cut catfish. Uh It was a very desirable thing. Um, in its own time, still is today. I love catfish. <laughs> and I remember a story about cookies. Am I right? <laughs> well, one of my earliest works, even before the museum came along. Um, I mean, I've always had a passion for knowing, learning more, and educating other people about this history since, of course, the passion I have comes from my own family's connection to it. But um, in 2007, along with uh, working with Cow Valley Heritage Alliance, uh, was operating actively in an office here, and they were environmentalists protective of the Kansas River, educating others on issues of the Kansas River. Um, I published a, a children's book on river history. Uh, it was, ended up being a small fable about a little blue cat 
and it's geographically set here where the uh -huh. River Kings lived, uh -huh. uh, just below the dam, a little blue cat named Rippler. He swims around the area and is picked on and is shunned and is made fun of, um, but has a dream one night after being picked on by some channel cat in our river. and comes to the realization that he can overcome some of these obstacles. So really, I mean, isn't he a great representation of the obstacles some of these right. river men were overcoming? Right. There's a lot of symbolism and metaphorical representation in, uh -huh. in that children's book. Uh -huh. But its title is Catfish Cookies. And that's one of the very first projects that I did that relates to all, all of this work. And aren't there some catfish cookies that you consumed as a child? Am I right about that? <laughs> oh, where did that title come from? <laughs> that, is that what you mean? Uh, well, as a granddaughter of uh, River King, my grandfather's fish market, my grandmother cooked a lot of it for her own family. And my grandmother made amazing cookies and pies and her pie crusts were just melting her mouth flaky. And I was about five or six years old. And uh, I knew even at five or six that my grandmother always poured this, the grease back off of the fish that she cooked. And it had begun with a big block of lard, uh -huh. but she would fry it and then pour it through a sieve, render the, to clean it up, pour it in an old can. And she'd do it every time. She lived through the Great Depression, okay? She was about saving things yes. and reusing as much as possible. And one day, at about five or six years of age, she I watched her get the can and the sugar and the bowl and the peanut butter and all these things. I knew she was making cookies, but I was thrown off even at that young age as to why she was grabbing that can that uh -huh. I knew had fish lard in it. Uh -huh. And it was in that moment I realized she was using that in those cookies and pies that I loved. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I remember as she just got a kick out of it. I'm not eating those fish cookies, Grandma. And she thought that was just the funniest thing because I had always eaten them before. <laughs> but um, as a child, I thought that was extremely disgusting. <laughs> as an adult, I realized, wow, this is not out of character for a river king. Uh -huh. Doing what they needed to do to survive, uh -huh. using what resources were available to them uh -huh. to get through life. And that's exactly what she was doing. Uh -huh. That's great. So great, great lessons to be learned there. Yeah. So we haven't talked specifically about the museum and people need to know that, that they can go and actually see some things mm -hmm. and, and learn even more than they are from this. We are low. The museum exhibit is located at Abe and Jake's Landing. <laughs> I bet everyone's familiar with that. Abe and Jake's Landing is a, is a business that operates as an event hall. A lot of weddings and large community events are held there. It's a beautiful location overlooking the Kansas River, and you watch the the birds fly over. It's a great place to, to eagle watch as well. Uh, but it's right there on the river by City Hall. And we are on the, as soon as you go down the long ramp, first small flight of steps, you'll see a sign that says, to the right, the office, to the left is the River Kings Museum. So we're right there on that entry level. Uh -huh. We have minimal hours, unfortunately, but we are so grateful for the hours that they give us, hours of operation. Um, at this time, and it changes semester by semester because I'm also an educator, uh, 
Um, we're open Monday through Thursday, one to four. And then if it's a weekend that you desire, if you'll just contact me at the River Kings Museum, um, we can set up a private tour for your group. So that's another opportunity. But uh -huh. when you do come down to visit, you will see a biography wall that depicts the lives of the men that we've chosen. There were many of them, mm -hmm. um, but you'll be able to look at images of them and read a little bit about each of their lives and who they were and when they lived. And then you'll see a lot of the tools of their trade, mm -hmm. the grabbing hooks and the types of nets that they set and the spears they used if they ice fished. Uh, and if you move around to the other side, you'll see a map on the wall. There's some maps on the wall. Um, one is depicts the specific location of the fishing cabins, mm -hmm. where they were at, and who was occupying that dwelling. Um, then there's just other things scattered around um, 1940s boat motors and just all kinds of little artifacts. We have an art corner that's somewhat new where local amateur artists are donating paintings and poetry, uh, works of um, river with river themes. So that's somewhat new as well. Um, and then after you leave the exhibit room, I usually guide people to other places in the building because even, not everything is contained in that small room that we have. But if you go about the building, there are other large hoop nets hanging from the wall. There's a a 115-year-old boat of one of the River Kings on the lower level. Mm -hmm. And boy, you're really missing out if you don't go out on the balcony while you're there and take a look at the spot where Abe and Jake had their fishing cabin. Oh, cool. It's And you can see the water coming over the dam and, and get a sense of what it must have felt like to live and, and work right there off the river. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the setting description of of what it's like to come down. I'll be there today. Please come down. Yeah. Well, tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday. Uh -huh. um, Wednesdays have been a little bit of a problem. We use student interns at times. But um, I'm very happy to set up private appointments if you can't catch, uh -huh. catch us during business and hours. And the hours might be different, different semesters from business. Um, I also teach at a college, and mm -hmm. so um, my schedule changes consistently. Mm -hmm. Now I'm running another museum as well. So. Uh -huh. It, it's hard sometimes, and anyone that happens to be listening that would love to get a little volunteerism in, please contact me. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. Um, and an easy connection point is the Facebook page, which is Kansas uh, River. Kansas. Yes, we do have we have a website. It's not up to par, so I don't usually I don't I don't have a, a web manager at this moment who's controlling that and updating it. But I actively post on to our Kansas River Kings Museum. Kansas River Kings Museum mm -hmm. regularly, two to three times a day usually, mm -hmm. updates of what we've got going on, the projects, exhibits, interesting stories. But if you want to go on there and private message me through the Kansas River Kings Museum, that's a great way to reach me. Okay. Or if you want my private email address or our Kansas River Kings, um, Kansas River Kings at gmail.com or our B Higgins Dover bhigginsdover at gmail.com. All right. And if none of that seems to be working for you, <laughs> you could always call Abe and Jake's directly and they'll get the message to me. All right. So Facebook and email, ways to find out more. And what about this project, this film? Oh, I am extremely excited 
to share. Uh, we've got all kinds of projects going on, but the biggest one that we have going on, I'm wearing a T-shirt that you can't see right now. Um, it's a it's a doc historic documentary about the lives of these men, of main predominantly Abe and Jake. Um, the title of the film is "When Kings Reigned." When Kings Reigned, and our first screening is May twenty first. It's coming up quicker than I can. My head's spinning a little bit. Uh, May 21st at Abe and Jake's Landings, our first screening. It begins at 1 o'clock with um, some live music. You can go to the open cash bar. We have Levy Cafe coming with some food. Um, and then at 2 o'clock, we'll begin the screening. And uh, depending on how many editing cuts we still have to make, it was just under an hour, 40-minute film, short doc historic documentary. Um, we pulled in, we have some reenactors playing the part of Abe and Jake. It is sure. just fantastic. It's fantastic. And then, um, after that screening, we'll have questions that you can ask of those of us involved in creating that film. And so it's Sunday, May 21st, starting at one with music and two screening. Yep. Followed by a panel. Quest. Yep. That's right. Be fun. Interesting. I hope so. Good things to know about Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, if you again want to go on to the Facebook page for the museum, there's a event uh, there that you can scroll down and find about that screening where you can click on and tell us that you're coming or post mm -hmm. a question. Mm -hmm. Now, what we did was get together our own film crew. Uh, so we, this is new. Those of us involved in making this historic documentary, it's the first time most of us have tackled film production. Okay. But those I have on the team are very talented people. Uh, and only in one case can I think of that one of our team members is an actual TV and film person who is experienced in this type of work. Uh -huh. But we have people, young people with a variety of different talents, um, two directors, I'm an executive producer and writer, a handful of reenactors, and then, of course, there's some still imagery, so it's a combination of a variety of different things. And then there's a bluegrass band named the, called the Ready Brothers Band, and we used their soundtrack, and they provided that to us. They had written a song called uh, About Abe and Jake, years ago oh wow and we're able to find them and retrieve the song and it's embedded into the film cool and it's just fantastic it's just fantastic we've been shooting the scenes what we started uh, six months ago mm -hmm. shooting uh scenes along the river trying to reenact these <laughs> uh what life was like for abe and jake and the characters that we have playing the part of abe and jake mm -hmm. look very much like the real thing cool yeah, that's what makes it exciting. One of the days that we were shooting down by the 8th Street boat ramp character, uh -huh. and a couple of fishermen roll up, up, row up in their boat and say, hey, they yell from, from the, out on the river, hey, that looks like Abe and Jake. And I yelled back, thank you, it's supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's Abe and Jake. Um, but uh, they very much resemble the, the real thing. Uh -huh. So as people listen to this show and they may listen to it when it's premiering or they may listen to it through the link, mm -hmm. are there ways that people could contact you and arrange for screenings for different places? Well, we have set in place several different screenings. Okay. Again, I'm going to refer you guys back, the listeners back to that Facebook page. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the screenings are mentioned there, but we'll be in screening in Eudora at Eudora His, uh, Historical Society is partnering with us and it will be at their rec center there. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all going to happen throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. And I don't have my notes, unfortunately, to give you specific dates. It's online. You'll we'll find it online. It, yeah. uh, we'll be at the Ottawa Library this summer. We'll be at uh, Perry uh, Highland Community College in Perry. Mm-hmm. So we'll be at the Lawrence Public Library. Mm-hmm. It's the second uh, screening that we're doing. Cool. So if you go on there, you can find a, a date, a time, location that's better for you. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, you asked the question about additional screenings. We're very much open to bringing it wherever you want us to come. Just Mm -hmm. get a hold of us. Um, Basically, we're talking about businesses Mm -hmm. or historical sites Mm -hmm. or libraries, that type Mm -hmm. of thing, and not just individual homes. But um, Right. But I was thinking in different places across the state of Kansas. Oh, yeah. We have a big state and lots of interest. You know, know, it's, it's not the Lawrence River only. It's the Kansas River Kings, you know. That's a good point that we, I'd like to re-emphasize that. Uh, so these men, although their cabins were in a specific stretch, a lot of their fish, they were fishing upstream. They were fishing downstream. They would go as far towards Eudora. Uh, there was one of the River Kings lived in the Eudora area, and that was Doug Smith. Um, and then some of them, like my grandfather, would at times head to the Missouri River in Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. There, he held a license mm-hmm. in a Kickapoo Bottoms area mm-hmm. and could commercially fish there without being concerned about mm-hmm. the laws stopping him from doing that. But then you also mentioned that when Dyke was concerned that he went to the state of Kansas for laws, right? Not he just did. local. He so, did. So this is really a Kansas issue. In this addition. is a Kansas issue because yeah. you're talking about the fish and game laws. Uh-huh. Uh, but... Uh, all of the stricter laws, we saw them published in a newspaper archive in 18, 1879, mm-hmm. and they, they just became stricter after that. I mean, it, well, there was a little bit of leniency with a few um, congressmen would step up and, and say, well, let's make this special exception. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of instances where some of our lawmakers would try to intervene and 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 come forward with agreeing that they thought it was just a little too strict on these men mm-hmm. you know let them let's loosen up a little bit on them mm-hmm. and it worked for a while but eventually uh, the all of the shacks were torn down mm-hmm. and life as it was known before ceased to exist after the 1920s mm-hmm. It was before that, around 1915, that the shacks were ordered torn down by the sheriff. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, for example, when I get back to the screening and the Kansas issue, I think about um, Dave Lowenstein, who has the project of the People's History of Kansas, mm-hmm. similar to the People's History of the United States, and that there there was the creation of different kinds of art to go with commemorating different events that happened in Kansas that are about the people as this is. I don't know whether you and Dave have ever really talked about this. We have not, but uh, that sounds like, he sounds like someone I need to talk with. But I do have, and he might be interested in this, uh, there, I have several projects in the works, but another one I think people might be interested in hearing about. Uh, We are partnering with the Spencer Museum of Art at KU. Uh This summer, Uh and again, go to the Facebook page, folks, Uh uh, in July, um, we are a project that I put together called the Living River 
project, The Living River. Mm -hmm. And it's um, an intertwining of environment and art. Mm -hmm. And so Spencer Art Museum is working with us. Um, specific day, you can come down uh -huh. and you can create art using mud and rock art, uh, mud sculpture, um, rock sculpture, rock art. Uh -huh. So the very first time that we do that this year, we'll see how it goes. And if it, if we have a great response next year, we intend on introducing poetry and short story readings that are Sweet. river themed in a different location on the river. Uh -huh. But this first time this summer, it will be, um, Art, river themed art only using uh -huh. natural materials of rock and water and mud. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Gosh, it makes me think of all kinds of things that are, you know, that those connections with art and history. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned Dave Lowenstein, and, and he's also the lead person for what's called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture locally. And a year ago, that group that I'm part of. Um, did a, a project called um, Artists Heating Up Climate Change. And there was a cleanup day at Baker on the wetlands, mm -hmm. at Haskell in the wetlands. There was, there was poetry and dance. There were lots of different kinds of events highlighting climate change, but bringing art into it. And I think about Katie Armitage, who we know as a local historian. Yeah, I know Katie. And, and I'm sure there's Mud Forts as one of her projects with with one of the educational things. I can't remember exactly when that happens. Watkins Museum has done some things yeah. with, with mud as yeah. well, some projects. Um, I was just excited to combine the idea of art with natural material. Mm -hmm. And then the more that those from Spencer and I talk, Amanda's mm -hmm. who I'm thinking of, yeah. uh, the more that, that we thought about it, um, even the art material of t that you might typically use in paints and chalks, mm -hmm. All originate from material from the earth, mm -hmm. and so we just kept making all these beautiful connections between environment and art. Yeah, and just kept spiraling into this excited enthusiasm about putting this together. And so the way that we're promoting it this time is as a it's a Saturday art cart, and the Spencer Museum regularly puts them on, uh -huh. um, and it typically will bring out a lot of kids, young people. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. To make art but this is definitely open to young people or ch young children adults it doesn't matter what age you are you can come uh, during the hours that the, the project festival is going on uh -huh. and make art and then we'll have a photographer on site who will take a photograph of you and your artwork creation uh -huh. it will be uploaded to a website cool. uh, everything that was created using those natural materials and then there will be some judging in different ca age categories uh-huh so, and if it goes well, like I said, we'll hopefully make it an annual thing and we yeah. intend to expand it quite a bit. And so we'll have different things going on, different sites. This this first time that we'll be in the 8th Street uh, River area, uh -huh. um, there'll be directional signs and we'll, as it gets closer. That's great. So this is, this is exciting to me. I, I love that just bringing together so many different things, the history and culture, issues about how do laws get passed? What are the motivations, you know, which to me also speaks to culture, bringing art into it, environment. I mean, there are all these different things. And that's the important reminders. There is this connectedness. And, and maybe, you know, maybe from a youth perspective, 
this thing about these fissures is the thing that's going to draw that kid into, I'm going to learn about this. That's kind of cool, mm -hmm. you know? But if you just said, look, learn about Lord's history, it's like, nah, not going to do that one. <laughs> Sometimes we need to do some hands-on activity. And that's yeah. one of the ideas that I had as, a, as an educator. And yeah. It's easy for me to, it seems to be easy for me to come up with ways that we can do that. Yeah. Um, and express uh, what we are trying to say through this history. Right. And I'm going to say to your audience, if you have ideas about things that could be done in conjunction with this Kansas River Kings Museum, if you have ideas and the willingness to help implement them, <laughs> <laughs> then contact Barbara. You know, find out more about what's going on, how, how to expand this in ways. Volunteers are always welcome. And that's my reminder. Be willing to help. Don't just tell somebody else what to do. Right. Oh, boy. We'll, we're always always in need in, of volunteerism, especially events like what I just described, yeah. as well as in the museum itself. Or if someone is, is interested in a private tour and I am personally unavailable to do yeah. it at the time that they'd like. Yeah. There's a lot of times when that is in need. But, of course, we are also always in need of donations. Uh-huh. Um, it's not easy to operate on zero. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it does take a lot of passion and dedication yes. and people who really, and that's probably what keeps driving me strong passion for educating people about yeah. this particular history. Yeah. I mean, we, it's easy to find information about that that is well known for individuals who are of a higher social class right. in our community. Right. It's not so easy. Um, to find information about ordinary, hardworking, down-to-earth right. people who were just doing amazing, extraordinary things in yes. their time. Yes. And so that's what I think that, that this represents to me is yeah. um, it's a different culture that we need to really attend to. Yes. And, and on a sad note, uh, Jake, the first River King that my heart feels attached as if I knew this man. Yeah. Um, he died in Lawrence, Kansas, and he's buried at Oak Hill Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't even have a grave marker. And it just broke my heart. Mm -hmm. But I guess it wasn't unusual um, that a man that did gave so much for community and has a business named after him ends up without a marker on his grave to even indicate that he's there. Mm -hmm. There's other family around him, but at some point in time down the road, uh -huh. I intend on somehow marking his grave. Lovely. Yeah. So listeners, to learn more, an easy way is to go to the Facebook page, Kansas River Kings Museum. You know, see what's going on, see how you can help. That means through time, through money, if you are able, learn about it, spread the word. The screenings of the film are coming up. Lots of great things. And Barbara, it's really your passion that brought this and is keeping on bringing this and growing this. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm very excited about it. And so long to our listeners. <laughs>